0: Welcome back to the Sports-ish Podcast, a place for those of us who like sports-ish. We are making sports fun, cute, and digestible. This is not your boyfriend's sports news. Guys, welcome back to the podcast. We are doing something a little bit different today. Uh, Ashton is not here. My My co-host, my husband, is not here today. It is... It is a new guest, and my interview with our guest was long. And so I'm going to just basically intro who he is, and then we'll jump back into the interview so you guys can hear that and we don't take up too much of your time. But it is Father's Day weekend, and you know, there were a lot of different angles I thought I could take with this. There's a lot of athletes who Our fathers, really cute fathers like Steph Curry comes top of mind. Um, We just saw the NHL Stanley Cup championship game. And after the game, there were so many cute dads putting their babies like in the cup. It was pretty, it was really cute. Um, But I decided that I was going to do something a little different than I've done. We did like a whole mom episode for Mother's Day but with Father's Day, I am very much here because of one guy and that guy is my dad. That is the reason that I'm here, reason that I'm in sports, reason that I wanted to pursue sports is because I was raised by my dad and my dad loves sports. He's not just a sports fan though. He very much has dedicated his entire life and career to sports, Uh, always worked in sports. I talk often about being raised in a sports household, but I never really get specific on what that means. And there's, you know, many people who are raised surrounded by sports, but um, I quite literally, from the moment I was born, I was born in the middle of the busiest time of my dad's career. I quite literally have always been surrounded by sports and of all different kinds, right? It's been quite the trip and quite the journey and it's given me the most unique, wonderful perspective on sports and it is the reason that I wanted to work in sports. And so, you know, while it looked very different than what we do at Sports-ish, my dad did have a crazy career career in sports and so I wanted to bring him on the podcast and I wanted to just chat with him about his career and things that he has seen in his career. He is truly a hero of mine but not just because of what he did in his career but mostly because of the father he was when he came home at the end of every day. I don't have really any memories of ever feeling neglected or ever feeling like he wasn't a father first. He always was. And with a job as busy as his was, that wasn't easy. Uh, And he did a great job at balancing. And as someone who has kids now, you know, I, I understand that that's not an easy feat. So without further ado... We're going to take a quick break and I have a quick discount code for Father's Day for any men in your life. And then we're going to come back and jump right into my dad. In terms of what you need to know about sports right now, what's currently happening, you just got to go follow the sportsish. We're on Instagram, we're on TikTok, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube shorts. Gosh, guys, they're are so many different things. It's the most overwhelming. But um, if you need a refresher on the sports world, and I'm sorry Ashton isn't here for his mansplain minute, but you got to go, just go follow us. and We are, we've got all of the updates for you. Uh, this week was a big one in sports. We have the Denver Nuggets take the NBA championship and then we, of course, have the Vegas Golden Knights take the NHL Stanley Cup. So big week in sports. And then, of course, you have NWL WNBA. You have MLS. Messi is here. He's in Miami. He's at the MLS. Um, there's been crazy stories. Uh, Tori Bowie, who was a U.S. track and field runner, died back in May, but this week it came out that she actually did pass away from childbirth complications. It's really just such a heartbreaking story. We covered that on sports This morning, we're talking about Conor McGregor on Sportsish. He, you know, at the beginning of the week was in the news because he had just announced that he was pregnant with his fourth child. And by midweek was in the news uh, because he had been accused of sexual assault at an NBA game of all places. So we're covering that story on sports Anything you need to know, we got for you in the meantime this is my father's day episode with my dad the sports podcast is brought to you by roan guys ashton my husband does not wear anything other than Roan. truly to work he wears the commuter pants and the commuter shirt to work out he wears the mako shorts to hang he wears the spar joggers he loves every single item that he has of Roan, and he looks really good wearing all of this stuff. There's a reason that he wears it, and it's because I'm supportive of it. It's also comfortable. And we have a discount code for you, Sportsish20, will get you 20% off your first order. And if there are any men in your life, any sports enthused men, Uh, that you need to buy a present for, that just want to try it out, use our discount code SPORTSISH20, and they will love it, I promise. All right, I am sitting here with my guest that I've been talking up, uh, my favorite guest that I've had thus far, uh, I kind of had a realization the other day, and it was that I have downplayed my history with sports and my childhood history and my childhood experience with sports. I always allude to the fact that I was raised in a sports household, and I think I say that my dad worked in sports. But, you know, my dad was not. You weren't like the middle school basketball coach. And <laughs> so I have decided that I need to embrace what what you did and what you accomplished. So long story short, my dad is our guest today. Welcome, my dad, Dave Checkets.
1: Thank you, Lily. Great to be with you.
0: So dad, like I was saying, I in talking about how I launched Sports-ish, I've always talked about you know i i was raised with a sports household i was raised with a dad who worked in sports but you didn't just work in sports you've created a legacy a name you are one of the greats you are in the sports hall of fame in utah you have rings you have championships you are you're a sports legend and It's a discredit to you if I don't own it, if I don't own the fact that my interest in sports is because of what you built for yourself. And so I'm ready to embrace it this episode. For Father's Day week, I'm bringing on my own dad, one of my best friends in the world, and we're going to talk sports. Are you ready?
1: I'm ready, but I, I have to say I think it's pretty natural for kids to try to carve out their own life without it appearing to anyone else that they're either hanging on to or that their career has been advanced by someone else. So I don't think you should be too, too tough on yourself. It's never bothered me that you haven't, you know, haven't really gone into what I did, because I think actually what you've done is quite extraordinary. I think it's really needed and it's not spoken enough. There's no place that people can really get information on 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 athletes stars people in in the sports world about their 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 personal surroundings their the people that love and sustain them the the people that that see them through the tough times and i i love that about about what you've built
0: thank you well It was very much inspired by you, and I think you're right. I never wanted it to seem like it was handed to me. Have you heard the term Nepo Baby?
1: Of course, yes.
0: It's a recent popular thing when it comes to Hollywood, right? These kids of actors, they're Nepo Babies. They were handed their experience. They were handed their fame um, by their parents' hard work. And so I never wanted to be seen that way in the sports world. But, uh, like I said, I just think it's important that I say loud and clear, I was, I wasn't just raised in a sports household. It was our entire lives. By the time I came around, which was the end of 1992, you were fully ingrained in the highest of highs in your career. Um, but that was just a small fraction of what you had done and what you would be doing and what you've accomplished over the past 30 years of my life. So today I wanted to kind of just for Father's Day talk to you about your career and then of course put a sportsish twist on things because you've had some ish Uh, experiences in your life and when we talk about the ish of sports ish it's the human interest piece the pop culture piece the fashion side of things and you you know have been at the head of teams and seen a lot of the behind the scenes of these players and their families and their lives and big personalities you've dealt with but we're going to start with just you and your career and Uh, You know, I know all of this, but I, I want my followers to hear. So if you were giving a synopsis of your experience in sports, you can start whenever you want. You can start as a child. You can start as a teenager. You have you have the floor for just give us what your experience in sports has been and what the highlights of your career in sports have been.
1: Wow. Well, that is that's a tough question. I will try not to go back too too far, but I was uh, born in Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, to two parents that actually were not real sports focused. My father was a a wonderful man and a and a Marine from World War II, which he felt so strongly about. He taught me to be a patriotic American to appreciate our country, our freedoms. My mother was a small town Utah farm girl um, who didn't drive a car and yet somehow managed to walk everywhere to see me play. So she was always at my games. When I turned, uh, I could count on seeing her in the stands watching me play And, um, and then I had two older sisters one older brother one younger brother and my brothers and i literally spent every waking moment that that we had playing basketball or playing football or playing baseball we always loved every opportunity to play sports we never played any winter sports we never skied we never played hockey but (laughs) And it's funny how, how long I've been in hockey, despite uh, never being in winter sports, but, but our, our number one sport was basketball, and it's probably because that's the, that's the game that we like the most. So we played a lot of that. I played in school. I didn't play in high school. for It's too long of a story as to why I didn't play in high school, but I did play in college at BYU. And I would have told you if you had interviewed me at age 20 and you had asked, what are you going to be? I would have said, I'm going to own sporting goods stores because my favorite thing to do was to go into sporting goods stores and and smell the brand new gloves, the mitts, the basketballs. I love to smell of a new leather basketball. I love to pick up a a brand new baseball bat and swing it, or golf clubs, um, and I, I would have said to you, "I'll have a national chain of of sporting goods stores." It wasn't supposed to be Dick's; it was supposed to be Dave's, you know. <laughs> um, but that that never happened, uh, and and I got an incredible break when after graduating from business school, uh, I. I got an incredible break when I I joined a firm in Boston, a consulting firm called Bain and Company. Long story short, while I was at Bain, Danny Ainge was drafted by the Boston Celtics. He had to get out of his baseball contract and, and come to the Celtics. And I was trying to help him do that because I had played basketball at BYU with Danny's older brother. That was our introduction. And the partners at Bain & Company were so kind of intrigued with the fact that I knew a member of the Boston Celtics that later on they asked me to advise them and their partners to buy the Celtics. It was in that assignment that I got to know all about the NBA and uh, met my mentor, one of the most meaningful relationships in my life, David Stern, who would become the commissioner of the NBA And somehow this New York lawyer and this kid from Utah, we just got to be the best of friends. And he gave me so many opportunities, including at age 27 to go become the president of the Utah Jazz. And uh, I had never run a lemonade stand. (laughs) I I didn't, I, but. 27. I I know, but I had done so much work on the NBA, I was really ready to assume the leadership role of a team, and I knew what needed to be done. And suddenly, the Jazz went from a just a terrible uh, franchise to to actually one of the more competitive franchises in the 80s and 90s, with John Stockton and Karl Malone and and Thurl Bailey, Daryl Griffith, really careful draft picks and a, and, a, and great coaches and scouts and a great front office. And then we built a new arena. We bought a television station. And the Jazz went from being a $2 million revenue business to $100 million in revenue and making money. and Wow. But I couldn't stay there.
0: $2 million. They were only a $2 million revenue business.
1: No one came to the games, Lily. Uh, The Jazz in the early 80s were being outdrawn by the minor league hockey team in town, the Golden Eagles. The Golden Eagles were averaging 8,000 a game. The Jazz were last in attendance in the NBA at 6,000 people a game.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And the ticket prices were low, and people really hated Hated the NBA for Utah. They loved BYU basketball. They loved the University of Utah. I designed a whole bunch of reasons and things to to send a different message about how good pro basketball was. And fr- and frankly, David Stern became commissioner in 1984. The league started to change, and I rode that wave. Yeah. And the Jazz became one of the most one of the most, one of the strongest franchises in the NBA. Um, But in the process of doing that, I had to find more capital. I brought in a guy named Larry Miller to be the owner. And in 1989, we just kind of had worked together long enough. It was not going to work. And I left and went to New York. That's when we moved back to New York. I was working for David Stern, and then six months into that job i really wasn't enjoying myself and when the new york knicks came and asked me to come there that was the team that i had grown up with watching in the late 60s and early 70s that was the team i loved Hmm. and that was a dream come true
0: wow okay keep going that that's just you're just scratching the surface
1: well (laughs) i So that was uh, in in March of 1991, the Knicks asked me to come. David Stern did not want me to go, but I really wanted to go because of Patrick Ewing and a team that I thought could be one of the best in the league. And um, I hired Pat Riley. We made a couple of trades. And in 1994, three years later, we were in the NBA Finals against Houston. And we should have won that series. It went seven games. We ended up losing in game seven. Um, One of our players, John Starks, had like the worst game of his life. He shot one for 11 in the fourth quarter and ended up three for 18. And I'm still mad at Pat for keeping him on the floor because we were the better team. We we should have won that series and that would be an NBA championship ring. But um, Pat left in 1995. We put a a young assistant coach in named Jeff Van Gundy, who's now an NBC regular commentator. Um, I guess he's on ESPN now, but he's a brilliant analyst, was a great coach. We went back to the NBA Finals in 1999 with Latrell Sprewell and Alan Houston and Charlie Ward, and that's probably the team that you remember yeah. best because you were seven then, but, <clears throat> and, and and by then I was uh, CEO of Madison Square Garden Corporation, which was the entity <clears throat> that owned the New York Knicks, the New York Rangers, the New York Liberty, MSG Network, which had literally every New York sports team, including the Mets and Yankees. And then we bought Radio City Music Hall and a number of other assets, and it was literally a $4 billion enterprise. And I was, I wanted to keep my role with the Knicks, which I did, Um, but I had a whole bunch of other things to manage. So, and I was there for almost, I was there for 11 seasons. Every one of those seasons, we went to the playoffs. We never missed the playoffs. Uh, And Patrick Ewing was, had gotten old during that time and, and was ready to retire. But we somehow transition, transitioned, rebuilt the team in 96, and again in um, 2000, and, and we were a, always a playoff team. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible to me that it wasn't 11 seasons, it was 10 seasons, almost 11 years, but 10 seasons. In those 10 seasons, we hosted or played in, in New York, 143 playoff games. <laughs> So we averaged 14 playoff games a year.
0: That's incredible.
1: And, you know, it's now been since, since all of us left. Patrick left. I left. Van Gundy left. That was 2001 when we all left. And, it, and in the last, so now in the last 22 years, we had 10 years. We played in 143 playoff games. It's now been 22 years since then. And they played in twenty-five playoff games, and it, it just shouldn't—they just shouldn't be that bad. No, but, it's, but it's, not in
0: the greatest city in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that that like dream team, so to speak, with Patrick and Alan. and uh, I have to share my funniest memory of the Garden and of that team. And you know, keep in mind, like I said, I was basically born at the end of '92, so very young during all of this uh, but I have these very select memories of my childhood in the garden and one of them was that I was sitting in the green room and the green room was the place for like players families and our family to Mm -hmm. go during the game and I would just run around and eat the like snacks and you know because I wasn't old enough to sit in the stands for three hours and and watch this fall basketball game so I'm sitting there and there was a little tv and there were bean bags and I was sitting on a beanbag next to Patrick Ewing's daughter who was a similar age probably mm-hmm. about a year older than me at the time and she said my dad is Patrick Ewing who's your daddy and I'm sitting there and I'm Sorry to say dad. I was like so embarrassed that my dad wasn't a player. And I was like, I gotta think of something here. What do I do here?
1: I remember this story. I love this story.
0: And so I'm I'm not, I'm thinking of who the best players on the team are. And I said, Oh, well my dad's Allen Houston. <laughs> <laughs> That's and the cutest story. She looked at me and she said your daddy can't be Alan Houston because he's black and you're white. (laughs) And I, that was, I mean, one of the the first times I had ever become aware of race, Mm -hmm. but also I just think it it was (laughs) a funny story because I went up to mom, I think a few hours later and I was like, mom, I, and I felt so guilty. Like I told her my dad was Alan Houston. And so then mom being mom, she said, well, why don't you go, make it a great mistake. Go tell her the truth. And so I went up to her and I said, my dad's not Alan Houston. My dad's Dave Checkets. And he's not a player. And I mean, I'm six years old. And she's like, okay, got it. (laughs) It's a funny memory. It's
1: a cute story, though. But you were like uh, the queen of the garden in those days, (laughs) because we would take you into suite 200, which is kind of yeah, I think even still at the garden, a very exclusive room where the stars go in. So funny, you know. And Jimmy Dolan, of course, in his only way, has has used it like he used everything uses everything else, which is, if you like him and you're his friend, you get in, and yeah. if you don't, you don't. Um, but during the days that we were there, we had an extraordinary group of celebrities. They love to go in there. And one of my earliest memories of you is I think you were younger than six. I think you were probably four or five when you would, uh, with your blonde curly hair, walk up to the bar and ask for a Shirley Temple, which they couldn't they couldn't lean over and hand you down from the bar. So they'd have to come out and around and hand you your Shirley Temple. And then you'd hold it with two hands and bring it back to the the table but those were i mean that was a high pressure time for me incredibly high pressure with the rangers and Knicks, the new york press um everything about it and i there were times that i didn't think i was built for new york or capable of of running the show there but we had an incredible amount of success and and good times the rangers struggled after they won the stanley cup into in 1994. we signed wayne gretzky you know you and i are sitting here and looking around at, at pictures in our home and one of them is wayne gretzky who wrote me a really nice note when i brought him to when we brought him to new york neil smith and i brought him to new york and um, so I, I wasn't happy about how things went with the Rangers, even though I did hire a really good general manager before I left and bringing Glenn Sather to New York. Um, and and you know the Knicks the Knicks had a great history. The Garden actually was named the Arena of the Year for six straight years. Then wow. And, um, and the Knicks were named the most valuable franchise in the NBA every year during that time because we were generating record revenues for any NBA team. The Garden was always sold out. We sold out 410, no, 460, I think, straight games, which is still a record. Wow. And, um, and that was at very high prices. People were scalping tickets on the street a uh, playoff game with Michael Jordan you know you, you could you could pay $10,000 for a ticket for one game right. pe- people were doing that so wow. it was a wild it was a wild time in New York especially 1994 when the Knicks were in the NBA finals against Houston the Rangers were in the Stanley Cup finals against Vancouver the Rangers won the cup Uh, about a week before we were finished playing, I went to the Rangers Championship Parade down in uh, the Canyon of Heroes in New York. Over three million people showed up for that parade. Wow. Just, uh, and you know, all kinds of confetti coming down uh, as the players went along the trade route, uh, the, the parade route. And I remember we were there Ernie Grunfeld who was the uh, the player personnel director of the Knicks and I were there and we were walking down the the parade route and everyone was saying to us we'll see you guys next week you'll oh. be here next week I'm sure you're going to be here next week but we lost game 7 and um, to to Houston to the Houston Rockets Elijah one was Stunning! He was so good. And they had all these young guards, Kenny Smith, who's now the TNT commentator, and uh, Sam Cassell, who was a rookie. They were—Vernon Maxwell, they were really good, and they were well-coached. And they had home-court advantage, and they beat us.
0: Wow. Oh, dang. So you talked about high pressure during this time. Um, but— like we do at Sports-ish. You weren't just having such pressure because of what you were doing for your career. You also had six kids. In 1992, I was number six who was born. And so at that time, you're running, you know, the biggest arena in the world, so to speak. Uh, you're running these very popular teams. You're in this crazy city with crazy fans and you know you have radio city music hall there's just so many layers to your career but then also you have six kids at home ranging from ages at this time like 16 to you know year and a half 18 months um how does that work where where does that pressure fit in the pressure from the family and did it creep into the career pressure
1: well, I, I, don't, I don't really think it ever crept into the career pressure. Of course, uh, when we moved to the East Coast from the West Coast, our older children had a real jolt to adjust to the schools here. Mm-hmm. that were much tougher than what they were used to in Utah. Plus the fact that I was suddenly, instead of a 15-minute commute to uh, the salt palace and to downtown salt lake city my commute was an hour and a half each way and even though i later had a driver it's still an hour and a half at least you know you're in the back of a car you can't do anything and this is uh this is the part of the story where your mom becomes truly the star because she was here and she was a full-time mom, and she was an energetic mom and, and a loving person. And actually, I think more than anything else in those days, it was an incredible benefit to me to come home, mm. to be home, and to feel safe at home, and to feel loved at home, and to love my, my kids, my wife, and uh, the safety of our home in new canaan connecticut which is you know about 45 miles from madison square garden but a a world away
0: yeah yes very much so and here we are in that childhood home that you would come home to every single day still here um and i love it and so fast forward a little bit i am eight years old and i come home from school I have a lot of memories of the garden, but this definitely is one that stands out the most. Um, I come home from school and mom is away. She's—I think she's in the Utah visiting family. I'm not sure. You can mm-hmm. correct me. And she, my nanny at the time, puts her on the phone, and she tells me that our dog. Mm my best friend in the world, Winston, who is this beautiful golden retriever, husky mix, has passed away. And it was the most heartbreaking moment of my entire life. I hadn't really experienced loss yet. I mean, I was was on the cusp of turning nine, but it was really just, uh, it was a jolt for me to lose him, Winston um but what i didn't know is what was happening with you behind the scenes and what i do know is that that night you me and then my three brothers uh gathered in the front yard and buried Winston and had a little funeral service for him and right. um and that was your last day at Madison Square Garden i think it's it is a story that tells um, who you are and it tells the man you are and the father you are. And so take us back to that day and what happened.
1: Well, uh, things had been things had not been going well with my boss, Jim Dolan, for a while. I, th- I just was getting the feeling more and more that he wanted my job. And I also was getting the feeling that he was... He was um, loading me up with things so much that there's no way I could succeed. Just no way. Yeah. So he bought, he bought a, a bankrupt consumer electronics store called Nobody Beats the Wiz, which, was, which had, I think about, I think there might have been 40 stores. My memory doesn't serve me very well on this, there were probably 40 stores, but he said, I'm giving these to you to run. And I had the garden, the network, the teams, Radio City, the other arenas we owned, one in Hartford. And I was so busy. I yeah. didn't know where I would find an additional five minutes. And 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 it was a bankrupt franchise, it needed, an enormous amount of work. I I just remember going home every day and once in a while, what I'd do is I'd have my driver stop in Norwalk and I'd go in, nobody beats the whiz, and I'd see these shelves that were empty and didn't have product and and I'd feel so much pressure. I was so frustrated with it because I, I knew that Best Buy, which was another consumer electronics brand, had like a team of Harvard MBAs running that franchise. And I'm somehow supposed to be doing that along with what I'm doing at the Garden. So I was growing more and more frustrated with him. And he was growing frustrated with me. And then he bought a chain of movie theaters called Clearview Cinemas, 250 screens scattered throughout uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York. And he gave those to me to run as well. And it just was, and I, I would ask him, what, what's the logic of giving these to me? I mean, who in the company is busier than I am? Right. And he would say, well, but you're the one who deals with consumers. You sell tickets, consumers come to the garden. So I think they should all be under one umbrella. It just made no sense. At all. So so there was frustration growing on that particular day that we're talking about it. I know the day it's May 9th Mm -hmm. of uh, 2001. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, And and we had some problems with Clearview Cinemas, the movie theaters. And he called and said, you guys come out here to Cablevision and let's have a meeting, try to solve this, try to fix this problem. And so I took the guys who I had in the garden who were overseeing Clearview, and we went out there, and um, he started to really jump on them, and, and I thought was being very disrespectful, so I jumped in the way. I just said, wait a minute, if you have a problem with them, you've you got to have a problem with me, because yeah. they work for me, they're loyal to me, they're really good at what they do but they're running The Garden and Radio City, and, and now they've got these movie theaters, and it's a bit of a jolt. And Jimmy took it as if I was challenging him in front of his people, and he got really angry, and he said, uh, you and I are gonna solve this in my office right now. And I said, great, let's go. Yeah. And we walked out of the room, and we walked down the hallway out at the headquarters of Cablevision and we walked into his office, but as I was on my way into the office, his, he had a wonderful assistant, Paula, who said, hey, Dave, there's a phone call here you better take. And I said, I'm supposed to go right in there. He, she said, you better take this. And then she went in and told Jim that I had an important call. So I pick up the call and I said, um, hello. And it's Maggie, my assistant at the garden, and she said, your nanny at, at home who's with your kids is calling, Winston has died. And I said, you've got to be kidding. She said, no, hold on, I'll put her through. So she put, put her through and she said, Mr. Check, it's a, I'm so afraid. Winston just walked out in front of the house and this is a big, beautiful white dog. We've had him for fifteen years. He meant everything to all of us. Yeah. So he walked out on the front lawn and laid down and and died.
0: Just you know? very unexpectedly. He, I mean, he was fifteen. He, he so. was
1: old, but he just—it was unexpected. He went out and laid down and died. And um, so I said to this woman who was with our kids. But none of, no one was home from school yet. I said, I will be there as quickly as I can. Then I went into the office with Jim, and I said, I don't really care what you have to say. I have to go. I don't have a choice. And when I said that, I was looking out the back window of, the cable, of his office at the Cablevision helicopter, mm-hmm. and the wings started to turn because Paula his assistant had called the helicopter pilots and said you got to get this guy to Connecticut as quickly mm-hmm. as you can. Wow. And when that happened, she, Jimmy turned and said, "What's that about?" And I said, "I got to get home." He said, "What's going on?" I said, "I don't have time to tell you." Yeah. He said, "We have to solve this now. If you leave, this will be it for you." And I said, "Then it's it for me." Yeah. Then it's it for me. But I don't want to, I'm not trying to sound like a hero. We were at each other anyway. It wasn't
0: positive.
1: I knew it was not going to last. So I went and got on a helicopter. I remember that day flying over the Long Island Sound. We landed at the White Plains Westchester Airport. There was a driver there for me. I jumped right in the car. We raced home. And as we pulled in the driveway, there was your brother, Nate. It's hard for me not to be emotional as I think about this he's he's out there laying by you know he's on the ground petting this his dead dog Winston yeah and he's got a blanket over him but he's still he's still petting him the tears running down his face I was so glad I got home because then Andrew came home and Ben came home and then it was time for you to come home and We all just sat around there with him for the longest time. Yeah. And then we said, look, we got to bury him. You know, I remember taking my cell phone out of my pocket and there was 45 missed calls. (laughs) You know, just everybody who was in that meeting hearing that I had left and wondering if I was okay. Everybody checking with me and Maggie trying to get me to answer the phone. And so we... We got the shovels out of the garage, we went out into the forest in the front of the house, and with your brothers, I st- we started digging.
0: Yeah. And
1: you were so cute because you would go in the house and get everybody a glass of water and <laughs> come out. And, and we were working really hard because this is a big dog and we needed to dig a deep hole so he would be safely buried and no animals could dig him up. So we went down about six feet and it was, well, I mean, it was tough, but we were also emotional. Everybody was taking turns, we were digging. And then your brother Nate had this big Defender Jeep, this big yellow Jeep with spotlights on it. So I drove it out into the forest and put the spotlights on so we could finish the hole. And then, um, and then we, had, we had the funeral service. And I asked everybody to go in the house and get something they could put in the hole as we buried him. So we wrapped Winston in the bedspread off of Nate's bed. We, we took him down into the hole and lowered him down there. And then it was time for the funeral. And everybody spoke, including you. And we got Mom on, on the phone. Mm-hmm. I, had, I was holding my cell phone up so that she could hear what each of you said, and we had this very emotional service. Yeah. I mean, there was not a dry eye among all of us. And you were, you were I mean, you, I, I, what you said was amazing, what Ben said, what Andrew said, what Nate said. And then we, we buried Winston, and, um, and then I actually took that Jeep and went down the street and found a big white rock. And I wrapped the wench on the front of the jeep around it, and I pulled it up Father Peter's Lane, scratching (laughs) the tar because it was a big, heavy rock. I pulled it into our neighbor's driveway, and then I came back across here and took the wench clear across and hooked it across and then pulled it on top of where Winston was buried. And that, that was the night. We didn't finish until nearly midnight. And I was emotionally shot uh, for so many reasons because I couldn't ha- help but think in the back of my mind that's my last day yeah. after eleven seasons or eleven years, ten seasons at Madison Square Garden with people that I loved, teams that I loved, and uh, it was over. It wasn't announced until um, probably a week later, but I but that was the last day.
0: Wow. Well, it like I said, it speaks to who you are. When people find out who my dad is or what you did, you know, I get a lot of questions and one of them is about, you know, was he just so busy when you were growing up? like what was it like to have a dad who was working in professional sports? and you know, I my answer is always the same and it's always that I I have zero memories of ever feeling, neglected or like your career came first or I never felt like you were ever too busy or you weren't there I have no memories of like a recital or a sporting event where you weren't there and I just think that it speaks to you and of course mom that you were a dad first and that that really proved it but I think after you left Madison Square Garden, you did. Um, you went into probably your career, the highlight of your career, I would say, and that was the assistant coach of the Orange Starburst softball team.
1: Yes, that that probably <laughs> is the highlight. Yes.
0: So, third grade, I was on a softball team. We were named the Orange Starburst. I have mentioned them on the podcast before. Because it was really when I started to realize that I was I did not get any of the athletic genes uh, passed down to me. But I kind of think about that often, how you went from being the CEO of the most famous arena in the world to the assistant coach of a third grade girls softball team. How were you mentally during that time? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was kind of a wild, wild situation, but... It, I think about it all the time
1: well the answer is i was i was um lost yeah uh professionally and i was angry i was angry that it had been taken away from me but that i didn't have much of a choice i could have drank myself to death i guess <laughs> but i don't drink as you know right um so i i had to i had to focus and come home again. And listen, listen. We had uh, Nate graduated high school in two thousand one, um, and then went off to college. And Andrew graduated in two thousand four. Ben in two thousand five. And you in two thousand eleven. And and um, you know Spencer and Katie had already graduated and left left home. But if you if you ask me. If you said to me, out of the blue, just name one of your five favorite days of your life, I would tell you that one of them had to do with that softball team. And it's just one of my very favorite memories that we went to your game, only we had traveled. We'd been, we'd been somewhere in the Caribbean because your hair was all put up in- Oh,
0: in Nate's in, senior in, trip
1: and it was nate's senior trip so yeah,
0: we went to saint lucia
1: so that's 2001 right yeah it was so, literally
0: right after you left yeah the garden. so
1: so we went there and um we came home and your hair was all in those those caribbean braids. braids right yeah and and it was so cute and you you had your uniform on and I don't know if you know, remember this, but mom had given me as a Christmas present.
0: Oh, I remember. A
1: 1967 Pontiac GTO Le Mans red convertible. <laughs> and that was, it was like, it wasn't quite like the, the car I had in high school. It was way better than the car I had in high school. But I had a Pontiac Firebird in, in, in high school and college that I just loved. So she knew I would love this and she went out and got it. She surprised me with it for Christmas. I had you in that convertible and we'd been to your game and now we are on our way home. And I literally remember this moment like it happened yesterday. We, 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 I went driving through New Canaan on perfect purpose um, and you're, you're sitting in the front seat with your seatbelt on, barely sticking up far enough to see. And we're driving through New Canaan. And as we stop at the crosswalk, there's a man who's probably in his late 70s, maybe 80s. He's walking across the street in front of us. I've stopped at the crosswalk and he looks at me and he just stops right in the crosswalk and smiles. And I'm I'm wondering, what is this about? He's totally stopped. And he says, you're having a good day, aren't you? And I said, yes, I really am. And he said, I'll say you are a convertible and a blonde. Like, what could be better than that? And he laughed, put his head back and laughed and then walked across the street. So. So yes, I missed the garden, I missed the challenge of winning, I missed the players and coaches and friends. I had such a good team of people in there, such a really good team at the network, everywhere. It was a great place to work. We loved each other. There was high levels of trust and very high expectations and, and we worked for each other and that all, that all walked out the door.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really hard. Um, and then you, you were home with six kids and you know, as Tom Brady taught us this year, sometimes you go home after being, having a busy career and you think, what have I done? I better go back to work. That joke is that Tom Brady retired and saw what being a stay at home dad is like and said, I better unretire real quick. And he did, but now he is officially retired Um, I have so many questions for you, but real quick to hit the highlights of the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was 12, I remember Real Salt Lake. So tell us about that.
1: So I I wanted to be an owner. I didn't want to ever work for another owner. I'd had a bad experience. Uh, Some of it certainly my fault. Larry Miller, Jimmy Dolan... um, I wanted, But I wanted to be an owner. So I, I bid on a franchise that was being offered by Major League Soccer. And I was very complimented to Major League Soccer owners that were legendary, Bob Kraft, Lamar Hunt, and then also a third in Phil Anschutz. They all called me and said, look, we need you. We need people who can operate teams. And we want to sell you the 12th, Franchise in Major League Soccer, and you put it wherever you want. You decide where to put it. And I said I want to put it in Salt Lake City. It's my hometown. Uh, as you know, we were building a, a place out there in the mountains, which was part of my dream. We had bought that in 1998, and I was we'd build a guest house. We build a uh, we were we'd build a barn. So I loved it up there and I wanted to put this, I wanted to work in Salt Lake, even though I wanted to stay here. Hmm. So we, we continued to live here, um, but we bought the 12th team in Major League Soccer uh, history, um, an expansion team, which I named Real Salt Lake because I'm a great admirer of Real Madrid. They're my favorite soccer club in the world. Yeah, I had spent a lot of time over there They'd given me permission to use the the the, logo, the team, the team name. We launched it in 2005 in Salt Lake City in the University of Utah Stadium. In 2006, we um, we we launched an effort to try to build a stadium. In August of 2006, one of the most famous days in the history of the club, you again had a role there because. I was trying to get the Salt Lake County government to give me permission to build the, to build the arena. They had promised me I, I, would, uh, I would get their approvals and their help.
0: What's her name, Jenny? Uh,
1: Jenny Wilson, who's now the, I think she's the county mayor, but back then it was a guy named Peter Caroon who basically, I had bought the steel, I had paid for the architectural fees, I was, I was neck deep in all of this. And he just said, this is going to get done. And then on that day, the day August 5th of 2006, was the day before Real Salt Lake was going to play Real Madrid. and Who at the
0: time had David Beckham?
1: They had Los Galacticos, all the stars.
0: Los Galacticos. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, uh,
1: Zidane. Zidane. Beckham. Um,
0: Who is the Dutch player?
1: Oh, Van Nistelrooy. Van
0: Nistelrooy. Yeah. I mean, these are big names in soccer.
1: Yeah, they were. They were a great, great.
0: And they club. were coming to Salt Lake City, Utah. Yeah.
1: Of all places. You did that. It was a big deal, and um, and Salt Lake was so excited about it. We yeah. sold 55,000 tickets. It was completely sold out at the University of Utah. And it was going to be on live television besides, but people were still coming to see the stars. Right. And um, but this Friday night before the game, <laughs> we were having a dinner with the whole board of Real Madrid at a beautiful restaurant up in the mountains in Salt Lake. And as I, ca- I came directly there from a meeting of the county council where they turned down the arena, I just couldn't believe it. With all that interest in soccer that we had shown, right, they had turned it down. So I come walking into the dinner and there you are. You know that I've got news. You just don't know what it is.
0: Which by the way, my at that point in my life I was I was th- 2006, what was I, 14? Mm-hmm. Almost. Um, we also like was my entire life. Right. Entire life. I, I lived for that team, for those players. It, I was in love with the goalie. His name is DJ Countess. I yep. loved him. I thought we were going to get married. <laughs> um, and I truly lived for that team and the possibility of a soccer stadium to be built. So you came in.
1: I came in. There you were anticipating what happened, Dad. Please tell me what happened. I was trying to avoid talking to you because I knew what would happen. And so you finally came up and I you know one of the things about my kids I just feel strongly that they ought to know the truth if they can handle the truth. And so I said to you it's over.
0: <laughs> and
1: the it's team, over the, meant
0: like we probably would sell the team too. No,
1: not that we would probably sell. We, we would sell would, the team. Yeah. It's over. You can't believe what's happened. The county council has, has completely lied to me. And, um, uh, and gone back on their word. So you burst out crying. I mean, and you didn't stop crying all night long and everybody was worried about you. Like what's wrong with Elizabeth? And I said, I, I, she's so disappointed. You know, the team is going to go away. The team's going away. The team is going to be in St. Louis next year. We're not going to stand around and wait for this. And I've, I've now lost way too much money to ever recoup it here, anyway. So we have dinner. <laughs> we go ahead and have dinner anyway because Real Madrid and all of their all of their people have come over, and we have this celebration dinner at a beautiful restaurant. Great food. Really nice evening. And and now it's nine o'clock. And. Um, the, the president of Real Madrid is a guy named Jose Calderon. He's a perfect gentleman. Spaniard. He's a Spaniard. He's a, he's a great gentleman. And he sees you still crying. <laughs> he says, 13-year-old girl. So, David, what? what is wrong with Elizabeth? And I said, Oh, well, I didn't want to talk to you about this, but we just got some very disappointing news from the county council on our stadium project, and they have turned it down. And I, I can't yeah. keep, the, keep the team in Salt Lake anymore. So I'm gonna have to sell the team. So tomorrow is gonna be a big celebration. We yeah. brought Real Madrid. We're gonna have a great game. We're gonna have a full stadium. It's gonna be a blast. But then, you know, next week, we'll announce that the team's been sold to St. Louis. And, um, and Calderon, sits there looking at the ceiling. He's got his wife next to him and a couple of his board members. And he said, is there anything we can do? <laughs> and I said, I, I just got this brainstorm all of a sudden. <laughs> I said, because we had bought the land in Sandy. Yeah. And like I say, we had all the steel bought, all the architectural plans done. And I just got mad about the county council. And I said to Calderon, Ramon, is, Ramon is his name, not Jose. I don't know what I was saying. Ramon, would you bring David Beckham tomorrow after your team has their practice at the stadium? Would you bring David Beckham to the site where we want to build the hotel, build the stadium? Sorry. And if you do that, we will have a groundbreaking groundbreaking. We have no financing. We have no nothing. We, but we're going to have a groundbreaking. And I'm thinking to myself, if we have David Beckham there and he's got a gold shovel digging it in the ground. Yeah. That will be on the front page of every newspaper in the world. Right. You know, which is an exaggeration, but not much. I mean the guy's one of the biggest sports stars in the world. Truly. So Calderon, he doesn't even pause. He said, We will not just bring David Beckham. We will bring the whole team. <laughs> and that's an Eric Gelfan, my PR guy, and Trey Fitzgerald go to work and work all night long to build a stage, yeah. to get a band to put up signage, to get hard hats with the Real logo on front, to get gold shovels. Somehow they got gold shovels. And the the next day at noon, the next day at noon we pull into the stadium site. There's all of these people. And the word has spread so that the, the politicians of Utah all learn that these Real Madrid stars are going to be there. We'd had a we'd had a an event at the governor's mansion the night before.
0: Yeah.
1: In Utah and the and the Real stars all turn up in in these beautiful suits. Yeah. You remember the I the tan colored suits?
0: How could I forget? It's when I met David Beckham for yeah. the first time, Dad. And they
1: they look like they're such stars and our guys show up like in <laughs>
0: Like polos. Yeah,
1: and polo shirts and stuff. But but once the politicians found out that if they came to the groundbreaking, they might meet these guys, they all came. Governor Huntsman, Mayor Caroon, Mayor Rocky Anderson from Salt Lake, even though it wasn't even going to be in Salt Lake City. Mayor uh, Tom Dolan from Sandy. All these politicians, the president of the Senate, they all came out. And we had a groundbreaking and David Beckham is standing next to me with a gold shovel, along with Zidane and Ronaldo and all of these all of these incredible players, plus the Real Salt Lake players too. Yeah. We all had shovels digging in this dusty ground in August of two thousand six. And then we went and played an amazing match that yeah. we, we lost two to one, but it was a competitive match yeah and uh
0: just was a win
1: real madrid was playing very hard they were trying to just bury us but we we kind of stood up and and it was okay and the fans were really so happy about it and and that turned the tide and governor huntsman got involved yeah and suddenly we had the help that we needed from salt lake city and the legislature took it over and made it happen and they did that because they didn't want to let Rocky Anderson have it in downtown Salt Lake City, which I've always—it's always bothered me. But nevertheless, it's been great to be in Sandy. Yeah. And I don't know if you wanted to go into that kind of detail, Lily, but I that was—that was that, that was a, thats a big moment.
0: It was, and it really speaks to your your vision. You are a visionary man. Field of Dreams, you made me watch that all the time when we were younger. Uh, but if you build it, they will come. And I'm sure that just echoed through your mind. It's always been one of your favorite movies.
1: It's always been one of my favorite movies, and I can't help get emotional about it, you know, when I even though it's just fantasy. Just the whole idea of at the end of the movie, all those cars like coming, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and you know this. I mean we opened that stadium in 2008. Absolutely packed, sold out. And then in 2009, we had such a good team. And won the, won the MLS Cup, yeah. beating David Beckham <laughs> yeah, and his team. At the LA Galaxy. And the LA Galaxy in Seattle. I remember you were the first one I hugged yeah. right after we won on, on penalty kicks. And that was the first professional championship in Utah in 40 years since the Utah Stars won the ABA title.
0: Wow. Incredible. And Real Salt Lake was, you know, the bulk of my growing up experience when you think about it. You started the team when I was 12. You sold the team when I was 21. So as I grew up, as I really went through those formative years, Real was was it for me it it's what pulled me into sports and I've always been a big soccer fan uh, because of that and always will be a a David Beckham loyalist uh seeing what the what he and Real Madrid did for our stadium I think having them there was monumental so 2009 won the championship you have you have that in your belt that's something that you get to hold on to forever you formed you weren't just a part of you formed a championship winning team then um while you also owned real salt lake you started uh you started an interest in buying an nhl team i was 15 when i heard that you were making a bid for the st louis blues right so random. <laughs> what brought you to the St. Louis Blues, and how was that experience?
1: Well, it was Real Madrid. I was in Madrid um, visiting the club, and a really close friend of mine who was also in sports, Tim Liewicki, he and I were touring the Real Madrid new facility. Now, Tim Tim was running a company called AEG that owned the LA Galaxy, yeah. So he wanted to see what Real Madrid had built in terms of a practice facility, which was incredible. And he came and um, walked through it with me. And we were while we were walking through, he said, "He said, are you still looking to buy something else?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "Dave, you should look at the St. Louis Blues. They're in dead last place, yeah, but the town loves that team. They do, uh, and." You know, somebody should buy them because they're going to sell it cheap. They just, just want to get out. And there's an arena with it, so you get a real estate play, and you'd have to work hard to turn the team around. But if you ever did that, you know, it would really be worth your while. So, so that one was a tougher one, uh, mostly because St. Louis was kind of flat on its back as a city. Lots of tension in that city. And, um, but I had, we had a great experience there. We went in, we completely rebuilt the team, the management, the coaching. We renovated the Scott Trade Center and the the Opera House in front. We turned it into a beautiful theater. Um, We spent a lot of money doing all of that, but really gave the city, I think we gave the city a great team. And a great, uh, a great arena and a great theater, and I, I basically, sold it all uh, the day, I, I finished selling my interest the day after they won the Stanley Cup, in 2019. At that point, as you know, we're in London, right? But that was, uh, that was when we sold our interest. So technically, we were a part of a Stanley Cup championship team.
0: And you, you built that. You built that culture. You. Um, reignited that flame in St. Louis. So, you know, obviously there was more after that, but mostly at that point, you and mom went on a church mission for three years. Right. Um, you had a hand in Legends, which was a hospitality group for, you know, stadiums uh, right. Yankee Stadium, Cowboy Stadium.
1: Now, my partners were the New York Yankees and the Dallas Cowboys. And it was a, it was a, it was a company that, that did food and beverage, hospitality in stadiums, did it really well. Yeah. It was not my favorite uh, role as CEO, but I got to do one project that means the world to me, and that mm-hmm. is we won the bidding on building out the new World Trade Center, the One World Observatory, at the top of the World Trade Center. We got the right to do that. And I got—I used um, the same guy who built the stadium in Salt Lake City, Dave Kirshner, brought in 11 technology companies and we put together a beautiful feature in One World Trade Center that is is—it's uh, memorable, it's beautiful, and uh, of course, we just happened to use that to let your uh, fiance proposed to you at, yes. the, at the top floor
0: in 20 uh 2015 ashton proposed to me at the new world trade center one world observatory kind of fun fact he
1: was dressed as an employee yes yeah to so like he throw me off him. yeah I know.
0: it worked yeah um okay and here you are 2023 and you're not at all retired but Maybe from the sports world, right? Is that how you feel?
1: I don't think that I know. I mean, um, I, I will tell you this. Yeah. Watching the NBA Finals, Denver, Miami, mm-hmm. I just remembered how much I love that competition yeah. and building cultures that can win. Right. That's what I think I do better than than anyone else. I think I, so. And... So I'm writing a book on that subject. I'm working oh. with uh, four students from Harvard Business School and a professor who was a friend of mine clear back at Bain & Company. He's a professor now at Harvard. And I'm working with these students and I'm interviewing people who know how to build winning cultures. And, and the working title of my book is Championship Cultures. What does that look like? Right. And I want this to be not just for sports teams, but for hospitals, for universities, for companies,
0: media that, businesses. Yeah, media Sports-ish. businesses <laughs> that,
1: that want to build businesses where people can come, work, and do their best work yeah. and feel trusted, yeah. feel valued. And, and that's the key to, to sports teams that over time, have extraordinary performance. Mm-hmm. So the three teams that I'm working on are the All Blacks, uh, the, the, um, the incredible rugby team from New Zealand. So cool. That has dominated rugby f- for 51 years. Yeah. Real Madrid. Um, and I've been talking to them, and I'll be with them in Dallas on the 29th of July when they play Barcelona there to finish those interviews. The Golden State Warriors, are, are on my list and for good reason in the last eight years they've been in the nba finals six times they've won it four times they're officially a dynasty there and they and they built a culture that is really kind of second to none so so golden state but i'll also spend some time with mike Shashevsky from duke mm-hmm. and and um some some outstanding leaders in women's sports that have had dynasties You can probably guess what they are, but until I do the interviews, I'm not going to name them. And I I want to learn as much about this. I think I know a lot about it because I've had this experience. And the book will actually draw on my experience at the Knicks, at the Jazz, at Real, uh, even at the Blues, Blues, and our missionaries. I mean, we had an incredible run in London Uh, for our missionaries and it actually it's the same set of principles high levels of expectation very high trust and support for those that you have working for you so I'm excited about that I bought uh, I raised a bunch of money and bought um, all of my son's partners out of Roan so that Roan is officially a family business for us now and I'm very much involved in that company and looking forward to what we can build there, so.
0: You're doing a lot.
1: And then I, you know, I own a, I own a, I'm one of the owners of Burnley Football Club and the English Premier League and a media company in London called uh, Gravity Media. So I'm as busy as I want to be. Good. But the best news is, the very best news is, I was able to take our whole family (laughs) to Hawaii in April. Yeah. All 33 of us. Yeah. And I get emotional just thinking about us all being together over there and how much fun we had.
0: It's the best.
1: And how much fun it was to watch everybody so united. Right. And so uh, having so much fun. So that's, If look, I don't, do I want to be in sports? Kind of I do, not as a CEO, but maybe as a senior advisor or a chairman of a, of a sports team. I really think I could add so much. Yeah. But my life's work now is to continue to build relationships and friendships I've had for many years, but more than that, as you know, I want to live long enough to see George and Rosie and all of my grandkids grow up. Yeah. You know, marry. That's what I want. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I uh I think you are I mean you're my hero and I'm I'm just so grateful for not just what you've done or accomplished in your career but who you are and the type of father you've been to me Real quick some sportsish questions. Okay. Okay. Well, we won't go too deep, but you know, you especially at the garden were around a lot of celebrities who impressed you the most what was like your most memorable celebrity encounter in all of your years I mean it doesn't have to be at the garden but that is where I figure you you probably met the biggest names
1: well I certainly met big names there Um, and and we had we had great experiences with most all of them. I think about some of the older movie and TV stars that I met that I really just loved. Yeah, they wouldn't mean much to your audience now, but Mary Tyler Moore oh, yeah. was uh, was a big was a big fan, and she she came to the garden and she helped us with a lot of. Uh, children's causes and she was just a delight yeah such a great person she passed away um, she'd been very ill but what a what a delight she was what a classy wonderful person Um, I got to meet rock stars you you know and some of my heroes like my band was (laughs) the who a British band oh yes in the 70s and, and 80s and still playing and I met uh, Roger Daltrey there and, and actually worked with him on a musical production at Radio City Music Hall I met boxers fighters you know Lennox Lewis um, and I met uh, Muhammad Ali at the Garden when we had a a special you know award with uh, 100 greatest athletes at a certain point in time and they were all honored and so I met them all I I think um, my favorite my favorite celebrities are are really athletes yeah because I knew them the best I have a relationship with Michael Jordan it's kind of a testy one because he knew how badly I wanted to beat them but uh, he's been a he's been a friend um, Patrick Ewing is one of my best friends still the thing that tells you all you need to know about Patrick Ewing is I always receive a note from him on Father's Day yeah. He always writes to me on Father's Day he's a quality quality guy Carl Malone and John Stockton are good friends um, and um, Alan Houston and Charlie Ward my dad uh, and yes your dad and uh, you know Larry Johnson kind of the modern day Knicks John Starks uh, great relationships with all of them but in terms of other celebrities I I would say um, you know the the people that I'm I was the most impressed with were um, I, I loved meeting Michael Douglas and mm-hmm. Catherine Zeta Jones yeah uh, they came to the garden uh, there were there were regulars there that that wouldn't miss games. Um, hold
0: on Dad. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah we're still going you can okay yeah. I know you need to go to bed
1: so no it's uh, so so i I just I have trouble thinking of i mean S- spike Lee yeah. um, Billy Baldwin uh, was a big Knicks fan. Um, these uh, Matthew Modine who I just saw when we were in London because he was in he was starring in uh, Oh yeah To Kill a Mockingbird in London which was fun fun to see him again and catch up with him there was you know the Knicks were really hot and Yeah people, people loved to come and we tried to take good care of them and they have remained friends through time sadly one of my friends back in those days was bill cosby Mm. who was the head of our foundation and his fall from grace was
0: quite the fall
1: was a fall and it was devastating to us because he did a lot for us
0: yeah yeah i mean i mom and i loved bill and the cosby show he was america's
1: dad right yeah yeah
0: okay um In terms of athletes that you've worked and interacted with, I mean, you have NHL players, MLS players, NBA, even MLB and NFL when you got into Legends. Um, Is there any athlete that has really just stood out to you as like a good guy? Because we talk a lot, unfortunately, about some scandals and, you know, a lot of cheating accusations and like this season in particular it felt like everyone had scandals John Morant's gun scandal Mm -hmm. Um, who has stuck out to you in all the leagues just you can name a few but just anyone who you're like that is a good guy
1: well I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of people I've, I've probably people that I've actually forgotten about now. But um, you're right, there are some, some great people. One of my favorite groups of people are the guys that broke the 54-year jinx and won the Stanley Cup for the New York Rangers. Hmm. So Mark Messier, uh, Mike Richter, the goaltender, Brian Leach, their f- famous defenseman, Kevin Lowe, Adam Graves I, I I mean I trust those guys anytime they are they are they were great players but great great individuals great people great teammates
0: you've always said hockey guys yeah. are, are pretty respectful kind-hearted I think guys. They,
1: I think most of them arrive with great values they've been they've grown up in little towns yeah farming towns um, on the ponds Wayne Gretzky is one of the best people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. and uh and i i'm so impressed with him as an individual i really am i i i have great respect for him uh in basketball you know the it's the people i named carl malone john stockton
0: but carl malone scandals
1: well i'm disappointed for him and disappointed that he he didn't take care of that when he when he needed to but right when he arrived for us as a 22-year-old, he did everything I asked him to. Mm-hmm. But but look, I got along with with people with bad reps too, like yep. Littrell Spreewell, and yeah, and he came to the Garden and actually did a great job for us. Was a great player, but you know, then then like I told you, your dad, Alan Houston, uh, Charlie Ward, Charles Oakley. Patrick Ewing, John Starks, these Larry Johnson, and Larry's got it. You know, he's got a bit of a checkered past. And L.J. Kids all over the place, but but as a teammate and as a as an employee, as a player, boy, he always gave us 100 percent of what he had. So uh, in the MLS, I had a, a great championship team. Yeah, with Kyle Beckerman and Nick Ramondo and. And chris wingert uh, homison M- olave and 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 uh ned borchers um uh, just just to ra- and javier morales who's now the general manager of miami inter, oh is he through inter- miami yes no way oh no he was a big part of s- signing messi because he's oh, from argentina awesome. so so um i had an incredible and jason christ the coach who I asked to retire He's and take over, the best, the best. So I, I've met, I've, I've, I've had a lot of great friends, met yeah. a lot of wonderful people, um, and, and really grateful for the run.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh, you've mentioned Derek Jeter being a really good guy. Oh,
1: gosh. No one handled his career in New York better than that guy did. Yeah. I, I love that guy. It's easy to love him as a fan because he was such a constant for the Yankees.
0: Yeah, and but like you look at A. Rod, who played at the same time, just kind of seemingly the worst. But on the <laughs> other side of it, Derek Cheeter seems like a really respectful.
1: Well, I I, I know I know A. Rod too. I've had dinner with him. I saw him recently at the All Star Game in Salt Lake City. And oh yeah spoke to him he's an owner in minnesota now okay i think he's trying to to build a respectable life for himself i wish him well
0: yeah for sure um okay trying to think of any other sports ish questions uh
1: Uh, you know we should mention the new york liberty players rebecca lobo teaspoon you know rebecca or um teresa weatherspoon um, just a, we had a great group of women, and uh, Carol Blaisjowski was the general manager, and we, we almost won the title our first year.
0: So that is something I want to talk about, and then we can wrap things up. But one of my main goals with Sports-ish is to bring more people information about women's sports. I, I love mainstream sports. I love the big four the nfl the nba the mlb the nhl but the wnba is making a name for themselves and you had such a hand in the development of the wnba and it's not something that i knew a lot about until recently how how involved you were so talk to me about that experience and your experience with the new york liberty
1: so David Stern, uh, had a vision. I think it was in 1996 or seven that we talked about launching a women's league, uh, called the WNBA. I knew immediately it was a good idea. Uh, the world was changing. Athletics was changing. Sports was changing. And, uh, we had, a, we had a chance to do something and make a statement. The NBA was growing in its popularity and its economic power, and the timing seemed right. So when David asked me to support him in this, I, I didn't hesitate. We, um, we put together a, a management team. We put together a logo, a name, it was called the New York Liberty, you know, after Lady Liberty. Yeah. And uh, we put together colors and artwork, and and uh, got involved in the draft. We drafted Rebecca Lobo, uh, and she became a first player. I had her jersey. Player. I know.
0: I loved. I you, loved
1: her. You, you wore that jersey around, and that was kind of what we wanted: was little girls, you know, to to make them. They're sports stars. And yeah. and I think that has happened to a large extent. The WNBA is more powerful, stronger than it's ever been. and And actually, you know, women's soccer has always been strong and yep. getting stronger. The LPGA is a strong organization with really outstanding athletes. And so I think soccer, tennis, but now basketball, and who knows what happens to women's hockey and um, women's tennis is a great I love to watch women's tennis yeah so so the you know but more importantly whether it's legislated or not women are a force in sports They're they have a voice they speak out and um, you know there's all kinds of examples of women who show great courage in sports and then take their role in society to speak out against against uh, discrimination, suffering, um, all of the ills of our society that, yeah. that need to be addressed.
0: Well, a lot of women have just this like empathetic nature that it's not that men don't, but just it's more natural to, to women. And so... Like they are able to notice the discrimination in the world and speak out on it in a different way than men have. But also a lot of the the popularity of women's sports right now is due to men finally backing women's sports. And we're talking like male athletes, you know, we're, we're talking Steph Curry sitting courtside at WNBA games and LeBron talking about how cool the WNBA is. And that's really, really cool. And but but not a lot of people in the '90s were were believers, and mm-hmm. you were, and you helped start a women's basketball team. And I mean, I've always known that you were the best, but that just solidified it uh, when I found that out a few months ago. I, I truly didn't know the hand that you had in the development of the WNBA.
1: Well, but you do remember when we went to the the. WNBA championship in Houston. Yeah, we flew on the the airplane with the team down yep. to to play that game again. It was the Houston happened to be the Houston team that we were playing. Yeah, we lost. We lost that game, but um, that that WNBA final game. They were just a little better than we were, but for our first year to get to the WNBA finals was a big deal, and. And actually, you know, it's too bad because the owners of the garden concluded that the team wasn't big enough to play in the garden. so right. they, they sold it to Joe Sy, who's the, the very, thought, the very good owner of the Brooklyn Nets. And now that's where they play. Yeah. And, and good for him because I think there's a lot of people in New York who love the Liberty. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly do. So, and I showed you a picture before we went on this podcast of... The eight, the eight um, owners of teams who decided to be part of that original uh, launch of the WNBA. Yeah. Sitting around Val Ackerman, who was really the the first president of the WNBA and still remains a really good friend of mine.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you didn't just believe in women's sports then, you believe in them now and... That shows in your support of sportsish, both literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I credit a lot of my traits in starting this brand and the ability to start this brand to you. Uh, I, I really feel like my passion and my drive. Um, what did mom call us the other day? She's like, You and Dad are are doers and dreamers. You both are. And so because you are a doer and a dreamer, I think I saw myself in that light and finally had the courage to start this brand. And, you know, slowly but surely we're getting there. We're making we're making a name in the sports world. And and oh, um,
1: listen, I I think you've done amazing things, as I've told you. I'm so proud of you for having the courage to do this and then then just scraping and finding a way. There's something about that exercise that will lay a foundation for you the rest of your life yeah and and you'll get better at it uh, the the more you go. I think. Look, I think Nate um, and Roan, uh, Ben and Roan, Karis and Roan, they all had a role to play there as a founder. And and Roan is really doing very well now. But it's, boy, it was a tough, tough road for them for a while. So I think there are great lessons for founders and people who have the courage to do that. But I'm really excited about this. I told you, I think. The more I thought about this, the more I've realized this is a concept that that has legs and is has got a chance to be a really big company.
0: I hope so. We're we're going after it. And I know. you're you really are at the heart of it all. So so thank you for for everything, Dad. You're the best.
1: Well, don't give up, Lily. You can do this. Yeah. And and people will sports is an incredible industry now it's so big it's so important it's and people all want in so right you're in a really interesting segment of it that people want to see so i couldn't be more proud of you and and thanks for this father's day wish it's fun to be
0: with you thanks well we will we'll maybe catch up with you next father's day see where things are at with yeah, the book that'd be awesome all, all right fun. thanks dad